welcome to another Prog Magazine podcast. I'm your editor, Mr. Jerry Ewing. I'm joined today by Joe Kendall. Yo. And Russell Fairbrother. Hi there. Prog Magazine's art editor. Um, and, uh, well, we're doing the usual stuff. We're going to be talking about Marillion's Brave because it's on the front cover of the latest issue of Prog Magazine, which is on sale now. And I trust you've all gone out and bought it. Um, we'll be talking about the proggiest things we've done this week, answering a couple of your questions. And because we've got Russell with us, and he's not with us every week. We're going to be doing one of Jules's record reviews as yeah, well. Hooray. So, so um, all you Shatner bassoon fans, get ready. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, yeah, we'll talk about that actually when, um, when the t- when the time comes because I played that in the office. Oh, <laughs> you've got your own record yeah. reviews for that, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay. Um, so we'll start as we normally do uh, by asking, and ladies first, Joe. Well, what's the proggiest thing you've done I've this got, week? I've got two things, yeah. because I'm going to go back in time a little bit. Um, the first thing I did was around the Maybank holiday, and it was to welcome um, Summer in. Summer is a coming in. Uh, and I was at Hastings Jack in the Green Festivals, just at the tail end of it, but they have a parade on the Bank Holiday Monday, and it's um, it's all folky. There's uh, the Jack, who, which is a wicker structure with a bloke in it, or possibly a woman in it, um, who gets slain on the West Hill after Not a parade. Out. Oh, Christ! A little bit Christ. of that. Yeah, there is no burning, but there is a dismantling, and um, it's more dancing, and people dressed up, and it's just so wonderful. A real celebration of Beltane. So it's a bit, right. it's a bit Wicker Man, yeah. Okay. I feel a big, big train album coming on. Absolutely, Well, yeah. no, or Beltane Fire themselves. Oh, God, yeah, definitely. Um, so that was, the, that was the first thing, going back in time a little bit. But the next thing is something that Russ was actually at as well, which was seeing the Spanish um, four-piece, post-rock lot, Tundra, um, last Thursday at the Hoxton Bar and Grill. And very good it was too. What's that like? You see, I've not been to... Um, I don't venture into the... The hipster parts of London. Hipster, yeah, very, well, we very, do. very often. Yeah. Um, and I've not been to the Hoxton Bar and Grill. Oh, was, was... and do you know what? Neither had I. And, oh, right. and What's I, it like? I, I regret it because um, years ago I used to knock about um, on the Hoxton Square, and that's because there was a great club next to it, which was a bass club that became the Blue Note. And basically, that was the only thing there for years and years and years. Hoxton, as we know, is now sort of hipster central, which is why we're now hanging out in it again. Um, but the Bar and Grill is a great little venue, and actually when we were there, Russ and I, Russell will, will probably um, concur, we thought this is a bit of a step up from uh, the vibe that you get at the Black Hole, which is a nice self-contained little venue for bands that we like, um, rock bands and, and, and prog bands alike. But it's um, it's just a little bit bigger, it's air-conditioned, hooray! It was a very hot evening. And um, sound, superb, lighting, incredible and just very accessible good audience there as well obviously quite a lot of Spanish people um, but then there was us and lot. beards and quite a lot of beards quite a lot of beards uh, and one linen suit a very a very dapper gent in the linen, linen suit that took our eye as well but we were there with Chris McGarrell and some of the other guys that we know from the prog scene and we had a really really good time and it was it just was absolutely stunning if you haven't heard Tundra before and you've got any inclination to post-rock um then do check them out. Check out Cobra. That's probably that's the, this is their fifth album, I think. Yes, because yeah. they did one, two, three, and four. That's right. <laughs> Peter, very Peter Gabriel esque names. Yeah. Um, so this is the fifth al- album. Um, it's called Vortex, and Cobra is the out, one of the outstanding. There are but many. There's, there's, there's an interview with them actually in, in, in the, the current new, yeah, yeah, in the new issue. Yeah. Um, the uh, it's interesting because post rock. I mean, we 
make the connection between post-rock and, and progressive music. It's also, there are a couple of excellent books um, about post-rock. Jeanette Leach's Fearless. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and obviously, is it Simon Reynolds? Um, yes. Yeah, Simon Reynolds wrote one a while back. But all those books have linked, made a connection between... Uh, but you get a kind of hip, a very hipstery crowd. You do. Do we get? Do you get the more proggy or, or proggier uh, elements of of our readership going checking this stuff out, or or is there still that gulf where they're like that? You know, they're the well, that's not proper prog, so I'm not going to go along and see it. I think you do find that. I think it is still a taste to be nurtured for some of, some of those guys and girls. But uh, obviously, this is kind of like a because um, it's a Spanish band; it's got its own crowd coming anyway, which is uh, native to Spain. But then you would see others in the fringes who I think we would see at our other at our shows too. Right. And what is interesting, and I think is you know really links them to our world, is the intro was Floyd. So there's a bit of Floyd going on, and of course, I, as, as far as we're as far as I'm concerned, the beginning of post rock is. Is Floyd and it's it's echoes. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge post rock fan, and I I I see it as uh, having moved from that sort of post punk through um, art rock post punk area mm. sort of wires earlier years. Um, I, I just see it very much as part of part of what we do. It's, um, oh. but I appreciate I appreciate you know if there if it's not it doesn't sound like yes recorded it in 1974 brigade might find it a bit. Oh, definitely, yeah. Well, there's 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 not, not nothing to to do with that side of it there. But um, for instrumentation, composition, um, the euphoria you feel—it's very euphoric music, actually. Post rock. If anyone's listened to Mogwai or Pelican, it does that loud, quiet, like that. loud, loud dynamic, yeah, which is really, something that prog itself. Yeah, you know, really uh, takes it with you. Russ, what did you think? Yeah, no, I I thought um, there was lots of people who looked like the sort of music we'd be into. But I do reckon that the majority of the crowd who were into post-rock wouldn't actually venture into our world more. So, so we've still that divide we've between We've got to shift our way to them, which is easy enough because it's great. But I don't think that they're aware of the um, heritage that perhaps the post-rock bands are actually um, farming sort of thing. Mm. Well, they were pl- so they were playing bits of Dark Side of the Moon before they came on. So I think everybody knows that, if you don't know that. What are you doing if you don't know that? But when I spoke to the band afterwards, because they're incredibly excited, because obviously they're in the magazine, as we've mm. just said. So um, I spoke to the band afterwards, but they don't know who Marillion are. That's interesting. They were going because I was going. Oh, they're going. Is that you? And we were all joking because pointing at every page. Is that you? Are you there yet? Is it you? And I was like, Oh no, that's not you. It's Marillion. They're like, Who? And I'm like, Marillion. And like, No, we don't know. Too young. Maybe too young, or maybe just something that or, doesn't happen in Europe uh, or, or well, Spain. Or yeah, they've got I a big know. following, haven't they, Marillion? Mm. So, but then again, we saw them um, be prog. My friend a couple of years ago. Oh. They went down a storm, didn't they, Marillion? Yes, that's so, right. And that audience, actually, the big prog, my friend, audience is a lot more, or appears, judging just by the T-shirts on display, a lot more sort of uh, open-minded to, um, you know, they like prog, but they accept sort of things like post-rock as part of the whole progressive thing, you know, as one big thing, so... See, Tundra have been going since 2007, so that probably puts them in their 30s, early 30s, maybe? Yeah, maybe... It surprised me, but if they're coming from a different kind of rock, yeah. then maybe it, you know Meridian just never came into their field of view. Interesting, but Floyd did. Interesting. For sure. Yeah, right. Okay, Russ. What about you? 
Well, as well, I went to Toontra, of course, but I also went and visited a record store in Bexhill, of, um, owned by Nick Salomon of the Bevis Frond. So we featured him in, I think, issue 25, back in 2012. I think that was my first studio photo shoot. It was. So I remember meeting him. And so I went along... So how long? How long ago? 2012. 2012? Yeah. Jesus, we've been with him six years. Seems like 60. <laughs> yeah, it's it been does. It's been a lifetime. Long sentence. He's, he's, I mean, he still gigs, but he was, I knew he'd opened a record store because um, Mark Benton had told me he'd done a, um, what a DJ set. Yeah. A what DJ Mark, yeah. So I went along, bought um, Peter Hamill. Oh, which? Um... The patient one, it's, a, it's an import. All right. It's called patient, because it's got patient on it. Right. And um, because of, I read the article in our own issue, because I do that, it was the two Progal Harem, Alban's Progal Harem and Salty Dog. And all three came to under £20. That's so that was great. a good buy. He, he, he has some really good And of course, there. I'm going back in a few weeks' time, because it's a great, it's a better store than the one I've found in my local area. Right. It's got more stuff. Lots of traffic albums mm. I'm going to get next time. Well, originally Nick um, was in the station just up the road, Bexhill Station, the old the old Victorian station, and that's why it's called Platform One. Yeah. But he's just got a bit more space now. But he really, really knows his stuff. And he's got collections. He just hooves up collections. Basically, his wife said, get these collections out of the house. And so he decided to open a record shop. He's only open like three days a week or something. Yeah, that's he? right. Yeah. Yeah, and he does right. a really good trade, both with established collectors and also um, he has a market of these sort of younger music buyers who are at school kids, school kids they come in because he's got like a one one quid box so you can get really smart little collection ah. going for a quid pocket right. money you just get you know you just take a chance like you, we used to take a chance you get five albums what am I listening to build it up that way yeah I mean, well I mean I always you know where I live in Muswell Hill we've got some great charity shops and in fact in the last couple of weeks I picked up the Daryl Hall solo album that uh, Robert Fripp yeah, produced I was a bit jealous for a pound I was a bit jealous of that I got, I got Mike Rutherford's Small Creeps Day for a pound on vinyl with the inner s- sleeve and as I well. got that from on Broadway recently as well right. for two quid wasn't it and um, and um, a Mike Bat album that looked rather proggy for like a pound mm. that I just thought I was getting yeah I'm like oh I'm having that oh Daryl Hall album I've yeah. been after that for he's Womble on Mask it <laughs> <He> wasn't <laughs> Womble on Mask no but um, yeah I th- and I thought oh, I'll buy those two and it's like it's only a pound it looks I know that some of my bad stuff is quite proggy yeah. so I thought this one will yeah yeah so but, well that's a, that's the thing it's just it encourages you to take a chance and you know we're we're into collecting anyway well I mean I have to say I'm not into so much collecting but I've got a real addiction to cheap vinyl. But when you're a kid, you've got no money. But what I used to do is whenever I did have some money, I'd spend it on records. And if I could get, like, you know, five for a fiver, then brilliant. I was, I was so happy. I saw something um, on, on, in the news online somewhere this week that said it made the claim that 75% of vinyl purchases are the same people they're like this group of super it's fans it's us yeah it's, <laughs> it's us, yeah. Yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I it's thought well I'm sure there's a lot more because I mean vinyls you know you, these days you can't walk into say a Tesco or a Sainsbury without being confronted by a That's vinyl a vinyl stand albeit with this, a smaller selection mm. than, but, but, you, but you look at the stuff you know because I know that you were talking about the Sainsbury's that uh, well we, we all trawled Sainsbury's for those Bob Stanley compilations I got one I know I you still, got one I, I got the two because I went oh, yeah. in then by accident, they seem to be there. But um, the 
kind of releases that they're stocking are aimed at us. I mean, they have a couple of sort of, they'll have an Ed Sheeran or an Adele or whatever, yeah. but they are aiming at us. They all have Dark Side Moon. Yeah, and Salt and Pepper and Hotel Pepper. California. Have, Obviously, yeah. I mean, I've had for, for ages, mm. but yeah. Good on them for that, actually. Good on them. So when, when are you going back? Probably in about, well, I could go this weekend, might go in a couple of weeks' time. Every other... Are you going to DJ? Well, every, every um, few Saturdays, he gets a load of people to DJ during the Saturday afternoon, about 15 minutes or so, play at Albans East. He said, why don't, I, why don't you come along, Russ? So I said, oh, well, I'll come along to the first one, just see how it's done, before I, I do my first debut in, on Prog on the, the set. So, yeah, it was a nice, re- relaxing atmosphere, because he had a couple of um, people he was chatting to, obviously known him for years, so just chatting about the music business and really knowledgeable in the records, all three of them sort of thing. That's because he also um, is helped out with and shares um, the space with, I think, with the guys who used to own the shop in Portobello Road, um, minus zero. All right. So he's got he's got access to those, because everyone seems to have moved down to the south coast these days, around Hastings and St Leonard's and around where you are, Russ. So, yeah, so he's got those those access to those guys, and they all hang out. They've got a new, they've got a new hangout. It's, it's Platform One, which is great. Yeah. Now, of course, if we were talking, we're doing this podcast next Monday, we, you and I could both say, "Ah, oh, we went to see the Fierce and the Dead's album launch show at the Black Heart." In fact, you're, are you going yeah, to that? We're all going to that. We're all going to that. So that would be something that we could have done. Now, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I have to leave that till next. Next, well, so my progiest thing um, was since we last did a podcast was. You and me with Derek Smalls. Oh wasn't yes, it? yes, that was fun. We d- yes, we did have fun with Derek Smalls. Yep. Quite a surreal experience because <laughs> huge, huge fan of Derek Smalls for years and years and years. And as you, as people may know, if they've seen my avatar on Twitter or, or um, other social media, I've kind of modelled my look on um, Derek <laughs> Smalls' pipe, pipe. And um, in fact, I think I might be his son. He's his pipe uh, holder, isn't he? Not a pipe, pipe holder, smoker. not a pipe smoker. We made that very clear. Yeah, we did. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, that was good, and also getting to some of his proggy roots mm. um, and the people that he's used on the album, such as Rick Wakeman and Steely Dan. Yeah, um, yeah, oh. it's uh, quite a few revelations. Hey, it was fun. So yeah, so since then I did uh, Winter's End which is another branch of the Summer's End guys uh, thing, and that was brilliant. Um, you know, another thing very much like Summer's End, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the Drill Hall in Chepstow, uh, Headliners, Mystery, Arena, Life Signs, all. I think all, that's three good, strong headliners. Very much so, yeah. It was sold out, was it? It was pretty close. Mm. It was pretty close. I mean, Somerset sells out. Mm. It was really busy. Mm. It's really busy. Almost all the other bands on the bill were fantastic. I have to, uh, I have to name check Alan Reed and his um, Daughters of Expediency because I thought they probably turned in the set of the weekend. All sold the but, show. But mm. it, was re- it was good. I really enjoyed that. And, of course, um, this weekend, uh, Saturday just gone, um, I was at Trinity, mm. the charity bash um, at Islington Assembly Hall. Put together by Matt Cohen. Matt Cohen and Adam Hodgson and Moo. So Matt from Ghost Community, Adam and Hodgie from uh, Touchstone and obviously, and, there, and Steph Farrow, who's the kind of organisational glue that holds it all mm. together. Um, I was down there in my capacity as compare and Auctioneer, auctioneer, yeah. Something I've had to learn to do. Yeah. Uh, last year, on the at spot. Well, no, no. I, I mean, I knew I was doing it, but last year I, I never auctioned anything in my life, and I got up and, and you, actually, you can have a really good laugh. Um, 
What, and what, I did, what kind of prizes were there? Oh, there was some, some good things. stuff. There was uh, someone had bid 500 quid for some Marillion some quite rare rinse stuff. I mean, you got everything from like a band goodie bag to there was some, you know, the Opeth book. They had a copy of that. Um, it's, it's everything from signed lyrics to uh, meet and greets, and they 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 did they, pretty well in terms of, of what what they got in. They're, they're um, well connected anyway. They are. They are. I mean, and, and there's a lot of goodwill. And who played? Um, Tin Spirits unfortunately had to pull out because. Um, uh, because Mark um, had tonsillitis. Oh. I was chatting with him, he said, I've not been ill for two years. And then the week before the gig, which we were really looking forward to playing because we haven't played for ages, come down with this. So Steve Rothery's daughter, uh, Jennifer, stepped up to the microphone and what a lovely voice she has. Oh. Um, she played with Ricardo Romano on keyboards and it was very, very nice. Very nice. And I think you'll be hearing a bit more from Miss oh, Roth- Rothery. Oh, good. Yeah, because um, Steve Rothery, was he headlining? Steve yeah. was headlining, yes, so he's keeping it, and a very proud dad he was too. He mm. sent me sent me a couple of pictures um, on the Sunday of uh, of Jennifer performing. Oh. <laughs> Just um, last exit to Pluto. What a revelation they were! We've done them as a limelight, and uh, I heard the album. I think they got reviewed, and we're not really sort of engaged with the band in any way since then. Um, anyway, they're on the bill. I remember saying to Matt Cohen, um, "Oh, I'm quite interesting because I." Yeah, want to see what they're like. They were fantastic. What kind of stuff? Um, very proggy, but they can go quite eclectic. They're not afraid to throw a bit of reggae into the mix. Not, 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 not too much. <laughs> Give us some reggae. The general, the general, the general consensus from the gig seemed to be that everyone thought they were great. Really, really good. Are I mean, they I was quite like, young? Uh, yeah, they are. Mm. They are. Um, and um, yeah, and I, basically, I've got to say wants to watch we're going to have to keep tabs on okay. them um, and then you've got Knife World in there as well Knife World well, later on Ghost Community played a series it's quite funny I just introduced Ghost Community and um, the singer had vanished oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was about three minutes and he was still on stage he just popped out to have a fag thought that I was going to talk for oh, longer no. introducing them um, Steve Rothery's daughter could have then been for that Touchstone it? stepped in um, with Hayley Griffiths who used to sing for Carnatica wow mm. Taylor made for each other just from that particular show oh good she's fantastic I mean she's got a great voice on her and they look really reinvigorated because mm. um, obviously Aggie's gone back to Poland and um, I think they were a bit demoralised didn't know what they were going to do and it just just from that one show they look like a totally rejuvenated band oh, that's good, good. Um, yeah. and then I had to depart then because uh, obviously it was the birthday party of one of Prog's writers, mm. so I had to go after that. Uh, but Knife World and Steve Rothery, it was really busy by the time I left. Um, and both of them, Knife World were the unknown quantity for a few people, but uh, I've seen Knife World turn a crowd around at Summer's End mm. with the old, oh, who are this? Like they're all noisy, aren't they? Oh, oh I really like this. Mm. Um, so they played, they pitched just the right set, yeah? And Steve. And uh, Steve Rothery um, played uh, obviously some solo stuff, but did Clutching Straws, the whole Clutching of Straws. Oh, wow. And um, I noticed, uh, obviously, I missed, I wasn't there, but I saw on um, social media Steve say that somebody, of course, it wouldn't be somebody from really without some clever clogs in the audience hollering out for Grendel. Oh, yay. And, um, and uh, so uh, Steve toyed with him by playing a few of the <laughs> opening chords. But he has said that if enough, if he can raise enough money via social media, 
uh, and he's prepared crowdfunding for Grendel. That's so, that has to happen. That's got to happen. So, that has to happen. So, so there you go. Uh, well, I was at Ring Festival in 1983 um, when Marillion were uh, the the special guest slot on the Saturday night and um, just before Black Sabbath with Ian Gillen <laughs> and um, and I remember I remember seeing Marillion at the final gig at Hammersmith on the Script for Justice Tier Tour Fish saying right, that's the last time we're ever going to play Grendel we're never playing it again they came on stage at uh, at Reading Festival and what did they open with? Grendel Great. literally so I played it and people were looking at each other going it can't be yeah. it can't be it was, it was just that yes and it was so so there you go so I mean I think that's a pretty proggy that's quite proggy oh, well for all of us we've done quite proggy stuff. we've, we've, we've quite yeah. progged out okay we've got some questions that have been sent in uh, by the readers on Facebook and Twitter and Joe you're going to read them out and we'll try and answer them okay question number one is will the prog awards happen again this year and can I come along? And that's from Nikki Brook on Twitter. Um, are the Prog Awards happening this year? Yes, they are. Can you come along? It's not open to the general public. We don't do it like um, Metal Hammer do, where it's a gig. Um, this is a sort of it's a sit-down industry dinner. So um, unfortunately, unless there's a competition that's being run and you win a pair of tickets. Um, it's or you not, own a big record company it, or yes. one of the nominees yeah. or you sponsor an award <laughs> sponsor an award yeah um, unfortunately um, you know we have to keep and also because of where we have it we've only got a certain amount of people that we can invite it's always oversubscribed you know, it just isn't it isn't practical to have the general public there because there isn't anywhere that they could be contained contained <laughs> contained <laughs> The general public can't be contained, Jerry. So, Especially not um, the program. And, and really, what, what do they want to do? Sit and watch people eat? Yeah, it's not like there's a performance of music like it. Well, well, there is, but there's only two only songs. Two songs. So. But, but isn't it on Facebook? We or well, yes. Thank you, Russell. Yes, yes. Um, it goes out live. You can sit, watch the whole thing on Facebook. Um, it gets periscoped every year and obviously there's running commentary on all of our social media channels um, and it is taking place this year and it will, everything will be announced in the issue that we're working on now which I think is on sale on June the 14th mm, that's right. right so you'll have all the nominations so you can <laughs> the arguments can commence yep. um, and we'll, we'll, be telling, we'll be telling you where it is um, and uh, and when Um but unfortunately, like I said, the, the best, the, the really the only way for the public to engage is, is to watch the live feed online. Mm. Yes, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's, so that's the I hope, they will, I hope that answers your they question, will Nikki. They will happen, and you will be, you can probably see them, but not in person. So, um, okay. Question two is: I read paper late in the new issue about talking at gigs. What do the team think about the issue? And that's from Roger Mallion on Facebook. Hmm, interesting one. Um, I can't see how you can stop it. I mean, a lot of the venues that we go to, they have bars at the same floor at the back of the room where the, the um, stage is. Hmm. So people are always milling around the bar, ordering drinks, meeting friends. It, I mean, it's particularly annoying in prog when it's the quiet bits because you can really hear... That's, Islington Halls is terrible because it's got a great sound. Trent, you know, yeah, and you yeah. can hear voices a lot better. Whereas somewhere else, like, I don't know, 
the borderline or something, you can get away with it. But even then, there's murmuring from the back. I mean, it's, no, it's if very it's annoying. If it's allowed bands, then, it, it, then yeah. it's fine. But although some people do still raise their voices to shout above the music, where you go... I don't understand it. I no. really don't. No. But, um, I mean... If I go to the cinema at lunchtime showings just so I don't have people around me watching a film. So I hate it. Mm. We've probably all done it at one point or another but I'm very mindful I try to be very mindful because I like to get quite far down to the front and I don't want to be turning around chatting to a friend and if someone's doing it to me I'll normally sort of give them the signal to sort of shut up because I'm watching and everybody else is but sometimes you do end up sort of especially if there's lots of people there you might end up saying hello to lots of people it's just it's a balance but when it's quiet when it's a quiet gig be quiet yeah I I think Alison uh, wrote a really good piece for Paper Late um, and it's something I I, we, are, we are aware on the magazine that it's a very big bugbear for a lot of our readers. Um, and you did, But there has to be some sort of balance here because you've got to remember that a gig is also a social occasion. Mm-hmm. But people have paid money to see a band, not hear people talk. So you, you need to find a balance in that way. I think we're in slight danger, however... Um, I think that the majority of these complaints comes from a section of the prog audience that's a bit older. Um, And I think that their tolerance levels are much lower and therefore this makes them rant a lot more. But we're in danger. I've started to see this in the way people complain of sort of demanding Mm. that gigs take place in a certain way or they're not going to go anymore. Mm. And and that's just no, that's, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Yeah. You know that unless the venue you know does something about this, or you know there can be no talking at all. Uh, you know, a letter in today from someone demanding that you know venues they should put some seating out for certain you know for people at every venue. Well, it's, it's you know that's up to the venue to mm. next to the mosh pit in the black art. Really um, yeah. And I, you know, and I think that the, the frustration from the from this issue has boiled over to an extent now where people, you know, the way that they express their dissatisfaction is coming across in sort of draconian, a rather draconian manner. And I don't think it does anyone any good. I think if you pipe up, normally people pipe down. Yeah, I think, And, and yeah. I was at a show recently, Carvis Tarabi um, did a solo show at Servant Jazz Quarters with Chloe from Knifeworld. It was a, it was a twofer. And um, right at the front... Two people standing right at the lip, right next to him, just started having a conversation, and we were like, "What?" Yeah, now so that we, we just shushed them, we just shushed them into, we shushed them to death. See, that I think is re- absolutely patently ridiculous. Mm. Um, and I think, I think it's, a, it's another, you know, I think when we first started going to gigs, um, you know, twenty-five years ago for me, thirty years ago. Um, well, perhaps it wasn't such an issue. Or also, pe- people have... I think today, people seem to feel they have a sense of entitlement to a lot more than they perhaps actually do. And this goes for the people that actually will quite happily stand at the front of a gig and yab without it entering their head. It may be affecting the people that surround mm. them. And then the way that people react because they don't want to hear that quite rightly. And that, that sense of entitlement too comes across in, in overbearing sort of demands about how they now want their gigs or they're never going to go to a gig again. Mm. Um, I, think it, I, think the, I think the control is in, within your grasp of just saying to that person, shut up, you're loud. I mean, I think, I think that it's where some people pointed out some venues have signs out. I think they should have signs up saying, please be quiet and be aware of your 
um, of your fellow gig goers because they're here might largely to enjoy the music. It, you can't do anything if the venue has stuck a bar right next to the stage. No. You're just going to get that. I've seen ridiculous letters who said, well, they should move the bar. That's not feasible for people at no. home venues and things like that. Now, I tell you, a, ve- a venue who seems to have it right would be the underworld. The bar's right at the back. Miles away, yeah. miles away from where people can go and stand at the back end bar. No one's going to hear anything. Now, you know what happens when you put prog gigs on down at the a venue like the Underworld? People don't go. They don't want to go because <laughs> they think it's a heavy metal venue. Mm. I remember Esoteric did a showcase there with a lot of their bands, Tins and spirits, people yeah. complained. When a prog community complained, oh, I don't like that venue. It's a heavy metal venue. I, I mean, I don't know what mm. a heavy, heavy metal yes. venue is, but so they won't go. They don't even like the stairs to go down to it. To be honest. So, um, so, so anyway, we could sit here and ramble on about this for a long time, but we we don't want to ramble on for too much. So that's kind of, I guess, our thoughts on that. Yeah, we don't like it, but we think we can. Do I something think about I it. think people should be polite. You should be polite mm. in asking someone to pipe down, mm. and people should be polite enough to be aware that perhaps you know they're in a they're in an area where people don't want to hear them talking mm. at a gig. Agreed. Yep. yep. Agreed. <laughs> Right, now an extra treat um, for people listening to this podcast because he's not always with us because uh, we sort of mix and match the uh, the podcastees. Is that what we are? Podcastees? Yeah, podcastees, yeah. Or are we podcasters? Oh. Ah, are the people well. listening in podcastees? Uh, the, we are the podcasters. Yeah, we are podcasters. We are podcasters. Yes. So, we, so yeah. we mix and match the podcasters. Mm. Um, although I think you've had Joe and me in the last couple. Yeah, he'll but, be bored with us. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but Russ is back. So anyone that heard a couple of the early podcasts would know that Russell, um, Russell likes to play his prog on a Sunday morning at home. Um, on the family stereo preferably in silence with no one's talking in the kitchen <laughs> not, talking is banned not always enjoyed by his delightful wife Jules uh, who quite is quite happy to share her thoughts with Russ as to what he's playing so Russell over to you what were you listening to and what was Jules's reaction I was listening to Shatner's bassoon ah right very left field jazz jazz Prog, though. Yeah, it's quite something. <laughs> anyway, I cranked it up to 11, as you do. And so um, when she wanders down, she goes, I can't leave you for five minutes. What's this? <laughs> so I, I said... That's, <laughs> I, so I said it's, to it's her, it's, oh, it's, it's a band called Shatner's Bassoon. And she goes, Shatner's? What, you mean as in shit? <laughs> I'm going to have to insist that in a minute that it gets turned off. <laughs> and of course, she carry on because she's wandered off. Comes back, Jesus Christ! She does so invoke the name yeah. of it <laughs> on then, a Sunday. Yeah, on the Sunday. On the back, Sabbath. <laughs> goes, I'm sorry, but this is getting behind my eyeballs and making my eyes throb. I'm, I'm going to insist on George Thorogood in a minute. <laughs> You know I don't do avant-garde. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, I've got to be honest. I put Shatner's bassoon on in the office. Oh, 
Right. In a full office. In yeah. I anybody that's listened, anybody that's listened to the podcast before, we I think we explained the layout of the office where you've got Prog Magazine, Metal Hammers next to us, uh, some of the web guys, and then Classic Rock um, on two sort of long desks. Uh, so it's all open plan, and we all sort of sit and chat away with each other and, and stuff like that. But music, when it gets played. Uh, there aren't really any sort of stereo wars, are there? So no, not yeah. at all. Um, so if we're playing some music, classic rock metal hammers sort of stay off, and then when it finishes, one of them is likely to put something on. So anyway, I'm like, uh, I think Sid Smith had been mentioning Shatner's bassoon to me, so I thought, oh, right, I've just got it in. I'll stick it on and give it a spin. I think within about a, less than a minute, uh, Eleanor and Vanessa on Metal Hammer have been like, what the hell is this you're <laughs> listening to? And I'm like, yeah, it's a bit jazzy. And literally, you could see the pain on their faces. Was it on their deadline as well? That no, I help? don't think so. Okay. They obviously didn't quite as vocally um, annoyed as, as Jules did. But it didn't last more than about three minutes. Because even at that point, I just thought, I could stomach, I could listen to this at home and be fine. Mm. But I can't inflict this on. It's a head- <laughs> it really it's, was. It's a headphone listen. Yeah. I mean, case, yeah. you know, like I said, they, they are out there. Very out there. Very avant-garde. And like I said, I could start, I could put that on at home, sit, sit at home, have a cup yeah, of tea, I listen to great. it. I don't put but these I things don't. on to annoy Jules. I could not. And there's there's plenty that she likes anyway. So yeah, I could. I couldn't inflict that on the office anymore. You see the looks on their faces; they were aghast, thinking like, "How long is this going to go on for?" They were getting it behind the eyeballs. But we have to listen to Hammer's growly kids yelling obscenities. It doesn't bother me because I mean, yeah, I used to be the deputy editor on Metal Hammer in the days before they were growly kids but anyway <laughs> they'll come They'll come round to it it'll be Shatner's bassoon on the bassoon yeah. in a year yeah <laughs> I suppose so anyway Russ thank you very much Jules's record reviews if you could see us now you'll see three members of Frog Magazine all sat here surrounding the uh, the microphone all holding copies of the latest issue of Prog which of course has Marillion on the front cover as we've told the story of Brain and um, and as we sort of have started to sort of like to do with these podcasts, we sort of take one album and have a chat about it. And um, and so, given that they're on the front cover of the brand new issue, we thought we'd talk about Brave. And I'm going to go straight to Joe because oh, no, no, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to wind you up. But <laughs> no, because you you sat on a podcast and said how much you love this place, childhood these I do, days. Yeah, um, you know that you got into Marillion late, but you know they're worth. You'd not listened to Brave before, so you've been listening to it this afternoon before we came in here. Yes, today was the first yeah. day that I listened to Brave. So, can I have um, that issue? Because I actually marked some things All right, of course, Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah, you can have that one. Um, so, yeah, so uh, today I listened to Brave. I discovered Brave. And, um, and I, I wish that I'd actually listened to it a little bit earlier. But funnily enough, if you have listened to um, me chatting about Marillion before, podcast a couple of weeks ago... Um, I am a I am a latecomer to to Meridian because it just wasn't for me when I was sort of like in my teens and it was what the, the um, um, some of the boys from the boys um, school that I used to knock about with were listening to but it wasn't for me at the time and weirdly enough I think listening to this now is more in context than it would have been if I'd listened to it at the time um, I can hear so much of what we cover and how important it is in our current scene particularly with um, bands like Steve we you know Stephen Wilson is such a perfect fit for bringing out the, the, the remastering of, of this album. Um, but it's, uh, I think, really what it contains that I haven't really paid much attention to because 
in the past I've been either extremely sort of like raucous rock and roll or massively weird shit and <laughs> and what I've kind of forgotten in the cavern in between is sort of depth and emotion uh, I haven't really had a lot of that in my, my music maybe and this is absolutely loaded with depth and emotion and a really great story yeah I mean I wrote something uh, I think I, it was either a paper late or it was uh, just an editorial about the, the depth of emotion in modern prog music now this story that Dave Everly has told with, with the, the band, um, it says that is, and I, I agree um, in hindsight that, that, that the Marillion we have today, the band that they are today, really came together, not in a, not, you know, in a physical way, but the, the, everything about what they are today was developed and comes from this album more than anything else. Mm. And yeah, I think that, that modern progressive music is hugely emotional music. I mean, one of the one of the the, the um, one of the boring tropes people will throw at prog is it all sounds the same. It's emotionless. And I'm sorry, I do no, not it's agree. highly emotional. Highly emotional music, and and again, because I mean, when this album was made, Wilson was really sort of a fledgling career with with Porcupine Tree, um, but it is it's, the emotion is is that you know. Fish, fishy stuff with uh, Marillion was was incredibly emotional, mm, and and there's a couple of there's a couple of moments on um, Seasons End, Hogarth's first album, um, where that comes through again. But but I think they completely encapsulate the way that modern day Marillion use emotion in their music, on Brave. Mm. And the story of it is excellent and super intriguing as well because they were meant to be creating uh, a pop hits album. They've been put with certain people, the A&R man and so on and so forth, to create something, gone to this lovely chateau, gone to, gone to this place to, to knock out a, a, a light, breezy, what's the term that's used here? It's kind of like rough, raw and ready. And then they end up with this kind of like enormous, heavy concept album that's just really beautiful. And what it does is it divides opinion in many different ways but it actually sifts through like panning for goals it sifts through the songs for the stuff that's going to come next and also the fans that are going to support them from there on because a lot of people drop by the wayside a cheap fast album cheap fast I album I think is what the record yeah. company had been thinking they were going to make so Russ go it's, it's amazing when you think about it, that all good all great albums have some sort of story like this behind it you know the we're not doing what the record company want. We've gone away together, you know. Whether it's Led Zeppelin doing for um, Headley Grange, yeah, was Headley it? Grange. You know, they've got their chateau in France and setting up um, recording in the main bedroom or the mixing studio. So it's, it's it's weird how all these great albums seem to have some story behind that's worth They're investigating. Difficult. They're difficult and tortuous. Yeah, and, and, and so agree with you earlier. You know, if you this. The next album after this could have been Fear. I mean, it's the same sort of depth. I mean, I understand yes, better I agree. this album now, but having learned through Fear, I think anyone who likes Fear and they haven't heard Brave, you think, well, you're missing out for the moment. Also, um, Marbles, I think, as well, mm. um, which is just right in between. They those seem to have two. these stepping stone albums, Marillion, yeah. from Brave to the. Yeah. I mean, you know, they are now. And also, the sound of the band had changed. There's. Um, and obviously, because Hogarth has come in, um, they developed sort of their own style of progressive music, which didn't sound anywhere near as much like Genesis as when they started out. But that's expected. All bands mm. show their influences a lot, a lot 
clearer on their youthful sleeves than when they started to develop their own style. Marillion had really sort of, they were tapping into the very much the style and sound, but that's sort of just as informed by the likes of the Blue Nile and Talk Talk and Radiohead as it is by the likes of, yes, Genesis and Vandegraaff Generator. Which is why it's so interesting, because there's a side panel that runs along through most of the feature on uh, concept albums from the 90s, yeah. which are things that I have listened to. You know, I listened to Roger Waters, I listened to um, Bowie, I listened to Radiohead, OK Computer, and Manson, Tack of the Grey Lantern. We reviewed that in this issue, I think, as well. I think the, it's Dave Everly. Yeah, yeah and Dave's, yeah. Done, yeah. Dave's yeah. done that as well. Well, Dave Everly and I obviously sat down and discussed how the feature was going to be and originally we were going to do something about 90s concept albums and then there was a thing of like if you put something as blatantly 90s as out on the cover do a lot of our readers turn off because they want something that they identify with and they don't naturally identify with prog in the 90s mm. however having gone through um you know what were good concept albums that came out in the 90s there was far better music out there than you th- sort of were thinking there was at, at the time yeah i mean and these are and these are big albums as anyone well. that hasn't anyone that okay, hasn't read the list i'll just run through the, yeah. the the 10 other concept albums from the 90s that dave everly has picked out to run with this roger waters amused to death uh, porcupine tree voyage 34 uh, david bowie one outside Camel, Harbour of Tears, Radiohead, OK Computer, Manson, Attack of the Grey Lantern, Fate's Warning, A Pleasant Shade of Grey, Pain of Salvation, Entropia, Dream Theatre, Metropolis Part 2, Scenes from a Memory, and Opeth, Still Life. Now, foregoing the, well, half of those aren't prog that some people are going to say, um, I think that's a brilliant selection of records and and quite a cross-generational um, selection of music as well. It's great, you know, to see Camel in there mm. and Manson yeah. in there, for example. So it was all happening. It was still all yeah. happening. Yeah. It's just that somehow. So perhaps, was... perhaps the nineties was a bit more of a fertile, um, fertile ground for prog, or perhaps you know there was enough going on that allowed the likes of Marillion and and then Stephen Wilson to sort of tap into something and take make much more of it. Mm. Well, I mean, the fact that they were still on EMI and they would continue to be on EMI well, the for interest, a little, what I, little bit longer. Yeah, what I love about Brave <laughs> is it's the album that effectively ended their career with EMI, but it's the album that created the band that there is today, mm. who are now more successful than they've ever been. Mm. Yes. I mean, just talking about how it's a difficult album, one of the quotes here that I really um, love, just to, to sort of typify the tension, saying that relations were becoming increasingly strained, and the band say that Nick Mander, who's the EMI person, blew his top when they bought a £30 coffee machine. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I like, and then also a bit, I mean, really, it also says a bit later on in that, but it was Steve Hogarth saying that I was, you know, he was getting strung out and needed to have a holiday, and EMI said, no, you can't. And he actually went down to the record label and said, you've got to let us do this, you know, or it's all going to come apart. Yeah, it's falling apart the seams. So, uh, now Russ, I'm going to bring you in on this because I made you uh, watch the film. Because obviously Marillion also made a film of the album, which at that point was the height of, I mean, perceived indulgence. But the, the reality is, I don't think this is an indulgent record. I don't actually think the film is indulgent. I think I see it as a perfectly acceptable visual companion to the music but 
What did you think of the film? Well, I thought he was a perfectly acceptable <laughs> visual companion to the music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But not a film, you know. No. You know. Well, it's, more like, it's more like a long-form music yeah, video, isn't it? Yeah, it's a long-form video, you know. And, in fact, it was even... It, uh, the bit I saw had also on the end of the actual documentary with them as they're wandering around the warehouse talking about making the album. So that was, that was a good package. Yeah, it was perfectly serviceable. The, um, they didn't use all the songs, but most they were they were long form videos. But I read in the piece that they they were thinking they were going to have enough money to do something like the Wall again or something like that. No, which, I think I think I think, that was, a pipe, I think, I think that was a pipe dream. I mean, I think yeah. I think you can ascertain from what's said about the uh, the money that the budget they had for videos for the ones they made on holidays in Eden that they were getting it's about thirty to forty thousand pounds from the record company to make a promo video. Which, of course, I mean, these days you can make one for far less than that because technology has moved on. You could shoot one on your iPhone, for example. Yep. However, so they pulled all of that. And I mean, and I think Mark Kelly admits, he goes, you know, just really wasn't enough money. Uh, the director of the film is Richard Stanley, who um, didn't, he'd done some films with Nephilim promo videos and he made horror film um, hardware. Hardware and Dust Devil. I remember seeing Dust them at Devil. the time. Yeah. He also, there's a brilliant thing on Netflix, anyone that's interested on the film side of these things, he also made The Ill-Fated Island of Dr. Moreau, mm. which had Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando in it. And there is a brilliant documentary by with Stanley in it you can see on Netflix all about how that project just fell to pieces right. so but that's an aside yeah I've not seen so I, this is the thing I, I, this is the first time I'd heard about Brave the movie see they've got a budget of £120,000 so, so you, you yeah. get what you get what you pay for don't you yeah and also this this um, this director is quite quite strange because I, I do remember seeing Hardware and, and Dust Devil. He's cer- certainly a character. Certainly I, yeah. a character, yeah. So it's, it's, and like you say, it's not indulgent, it's, 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 it's very interesting. Um, and, and also another thing they say is they felt that they were making something and ended up with something like Quadrophenia. I really agree with that actually. It's quite kind of, a, um, a, a, it's got a sense of, of that, you know, the, the, the emotion and the kind of um, paranoia and upset and oh, well, the, the, all, the, all the feelings. The, the, the story's intriguing. Hogarth had heard a radio report. This is, but not when he was in Marillion. He was back in his pre-Marillion days, I think, in How We Live. Uh, a, a girl had been found wandering on the Seven Bridge, which is a notorious suicide spot, and she wouldn't talk, wouldn't say anything. You know, and she was clearly in distress, and the police had obviously taken her in to look, you know, to look after her but put out you know does anybody know um, anybody any information we're trying to trace somebody relatives or anything ultimately um, I believe that her parents did come and one of the things that uh, we were asked um, when we were uh, putting this this together was one of, one of the editorial director was like oh are you going to get hold of her to talk to her and it was kind of like Probably not really, if you think that's a very traumatic sort of yes. thing that she's kind of gone through. Um, chances are that the family don't even know there's an album. Uh, <laughs> probably not going to want to go go drinking. So there was never any report of, of a follow-up really report of uh, who this woman was. Uh, you can just, you, what you have to do, I, we know that her, her parents 
um, did come and collect her, you just kind of hope that everything got sorted out and that everything was fine. But you probably wouldn't really want the trauma of knowing all this raked up. I mean, this came out in 1994, so that's, what, 20, 25, 26 years, um, uh, or 24 years ago. And, um, and so then it goes on to, to explain how it it, um, it it had some chart action, a little bit of chart, chart action, but it, it started to sort of, you know... It, they were on their, their sort of way down a little bit in, in that respect. But as you were saying, Russ, when a, there's a very difficult album, it becomes a very important album. Sometimes those albums all, also, the influential albums, are not the ones that performed well commercially, no. but, they, but they've laid a template for the next gen, and this is one of those albums. Uh, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think that's a, a very good um, you know, a, a description of, 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 of what it was. It certainly, you know, I mean, it... it, it it's perceived now. I mean, I guess they wouldn't have really considered putting out uh, because the reason that obviously we we, we put Marillion on colour is a big lavish box set of Brave had come out. Um, you know, so we thought, oh well, it's ripe, and and because it's a concept album, and because in the nineties, you know, okay, we unearthed ten others, but there's that kind of thing of like you know that whole prog and concept album that was over, wasn't it? It wasn't done. Well, apparently it was, it was, and it was done very well. Mm-hmm. But Marillion seemed to do it. I mean, clearly, actually did it better than. It's just taken a while to surface. That's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. So I mean, this the other thing. You see, you got the page open where we talked to Carl Glover, who designed the album sleeve. Um, equally, is the, the face you discovered this. Uh, 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 didn't didn't he tell you? Well, he told me it yeah. was uh, those those model cards. So yeah. if a photographer takes a picture of a model and they use them as examples of here's my work so I think um, it was actually Carl's boss because he, he was working at a studio at the time they'd been sent some photographers cards and there was this image of a girl sitting on it that um, they liked the face so they just decided to use it Yeah. so I wanted to reuse it in there but I'm not sure of the copyright <laughs> so that's why there isn't an right. image of it except she's on the um, yeah. spine Oh, oh, is she? Oh, is she? Ah, hey. Right. Because I oh, thought cool. so. But I like, I like the quote from Carl that says, uh, uh, Dave says, uh, did he ever find out the identity of the girl in the photo? No, I never knew it knew at all. There's someone out there on a brilliant cover and doesn't even know it. <laughs> but that happens, happens more than you think. think. <laughs> so, but it's kind of like, you know, the story behind the album, the girl. There's an album about a girl who probably possibly doesn't even know there's an album about her yeah. and a period in it's her a life. Bubble, it's a yeah. double bubble. Yeah, yeah. You know. it's brilliant. Because um, yeah. as you he said he goes um Carl uh, has no idea what happened to the photographer that sent the, the the original picture in he says he seems to have disappeared without trace I've got a feeling he was trying to trying out a new career and decided to do something different instead <laughs> so I mean you know so there's all these little chance moments that all pull together um I mean and if you read the story as well I mean Marillion themselves were it, they were having trouble sort of pulling together because the band musically worked one way, which is to spend a long, long time on pieces of music. And Hogarth liked to knock out a song yeah, in a day. Yeah, they've got this new guy who can do something and then just go away, but they're all so, working on so it. So they actually, I mean, at one point it says he was even sent home from a recording session so they could get on with... Um, but it appears that this is the album that pulled them all together because they got into it. The band unsurprisingly when Steve mentioned the concept went oh yeah we can get into that because it was conceptual and that was how so you see yeah they lapped that up didn't they yeah. they loved it so yeah. you see you can also see in, in this whole thing 
a lineup that you know, brand new lineup of a band, Hogarth having to replace a much loved figure, um, it's not quite working out up until the start of Brave, and then Brave is the album that actually pulls all of Marillion together as well, mm. and and they become a much more solid unit as a band. But it also shows the importance of a good producer because yes, Dave Megan wanted to record. He was it was the same mindset as the band. Let's consider things. Let's take our time over it. Let's record anything we like and add. So he, he fills out the sound between the songs. So that makes it sound a complete concept album. I love all the little noises you get. The yeah. Splash of the rock and... And the double ending as double well. Ending. Oh, is... Well, this, yeah, this is, well, it is pure Monty Python. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Well, yeah. Well, no, I mean, uh, and anyone that's sort of listening in and, and hasn't read the feature and doesn't know that um, they double tracked they'll double groove the album mm. so you've got two potential endings to the story a happy one and a sad one and it depends just depends how you put the needle down back in the day uh, as to what ending you got to the record which is something Monty Python had done on their matching tie and handkerchief set they'd had a double groove so you had two sets of jokes running alongside each other depending yeah. on where the needle landed so, which I think is genius I've worked with George from Porky Porky Prime I was going to say, yeah, yeah, famous man. Yeah, Porky so I, Prime cuts. Yeah, Porky Prime cuts. Because I, I, I mean, if anyone's a Madness fan when they were a kid, that's what you used to see on your Madness records. Porky Prime cut, cut. And uh, I worked with him. I, I used to work run a little uh, independent record label, and I actually got to have him master one of my records. And I was so excited. But I couldn't convey. I had to be cool. Um, but I couldn't <laughs> go. You're George. You're Porky's. So yeah, amazing. Great, great idea. One of the other things that's uh, in here is talking about when they went on tour and if, it, if the record was, was doing not so well, then the tour absolutely killed it as well. <laughs> well, I mean... I, Divided this, the gap. Yeah, Divided well, the gap. This, this is very interesting because, you know, you look at the Marillion audience today and they're like, you know, a very die-hard, strong crowd. In, in their eyes, their Marillion can do no wrong. Mm. Maybe it's because we're still feeling the ripples of the after effects of Fish leaving and Steve Hogarth coming in in 1994. Mm. Uh, it wasn't, the, you know, it wasn't as cut and dried. But not uh, only that, he's appearing on stage in makeup and pigtails to, to be the girl, which is which is interesting. But not not you know, this isn't a strange world to prog fans. No, not of at all. Ian Mosley's quote, I think he says. Um, the atmosphere in the concert halls was like fucking hell what's all this when we came on and did the encore and played songs that weren't from Brave it was a completely different show you could physically see people sigh with relief because obviously they went out and played the whole of the album yeah. you know um, yeah it's, it's a weird it, it, it's, I mean it's a great story it's a great story it and in is. fact um, we had a lovely compliment um, here at Future Publishing the editor of one of them uh, other magazines came into the office and said, "Oh, my husband's a big Marillion fan. Can I get a copy of your new issue?" I said, "Yeah, of course, please. You know, have it." Came in about a week later and said, "Oh, just wanted to say, my husband said he loves your Marillion feature. He learned stuff about Brave which he didn't think he would." Excellent. He thought he knew everything, well, but he and that you know. So that's I was pretty pretty happy that you know, and hopefully people listening in, um, you know, uh, feel feel the same. Jerry, can I just ask you, you as, a, as a Meridian fan at the time, what did you think of this album? Um, actually, I talk about it in the editorial. Um, you know, say, I, I was deputy editor of Metal Hammer at the time, but Hammer, there was no classic rock, 
and obviously no prog magazine. So Hammer back then wasn't as as full on metal. It was more. It would cover heavy rock, prog rock. Um, you know, it it wasn't as tribal, mm. I suppose, as as it is now. Um, and I was obviously a Marillion fan. I'm, I used to cover a lot of the prog that was written about in the 90s that's how I got to know Stephen Wilson um, and I was intrigued because they were going to do a concept album uh, which I thought I was never going to hear the like of which again after this post childhood um, and you, you had some of the younger writers who by which point Marillion were by this time they were old farts and they didn't want to know and they were only interested in Pearl Jam and Pantera and things like that but the older the older Marillion fans were still split. You had some of them going, well, I only like the Fish era stuff. Don't like this new guy. Um, and then those of us that were, we were absolutely intrigued at how they could get on. But there was something in me that was always like, well done, boys. Because you know, the last thing anyone was going to expect in 1994 is you got, you're going to make a concept album. Um, so I was always very kind of like chuffed that they'd done it because they went against the grain. Um, as they often have done, funny enough, mm. in their career, to sort of that do the unexpected when people least expect it. But you liked it. Oh yeah, I love it. I mm. think it's a great record. It's um it's it's probably in my top two uh Hogarth era albums and certainly in my top five Marillion albums of all time. Ooh. Well you can't leave us like that. What are the top two? because ah, then we're going to get in the whole fish versus Hogarth <laughs> argument and that's not what we're about and looking at the clock we've rambled on far too long so I'm going to draw our conversation to a close there no. so um, Joe, Russ thank you very much for joining me thanks a lot um, anyone that's listening in uh, you want to uh, get involved if you want to ask a question for the next podcast which we're recording in about a fortnight prog at futurenet.com or the uh, social media channels Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff um, but yeah thanks thanks for listening hope you've enjoyed the podcast and uh, we'll see you again soon